Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. She was the former management news editor for the Wall Street Journal. She shared the 2003 Pulitzer Prize about corporate scandal. She has won numerous other awards for her exceptional journalism. But aside from all the accolades, I feel like I know her because I have read her articles for decades. I read much of her career advice and family advice at a formative stage in my own life. I'm talking about Joanne Lublin. She has written a book called Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. Her previous book was Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. Welcome to Aim Higher, Joanne. Thanks so much for having me, Skip. So, Joanne, pandemic, remote work, remote school, all of these changes, what are some of the challenges and implications we've seen for working moms that have stemmed from COVID? Well, I think those implications have been drastic and profound and hugely harmful to both their mental and physical health, not to mention their employability. There's some pretty stark numbers that tell that story. Early on in COVID-19, one study found that mothers with children under 12 had lost nearly 2.2 million jobs, and that was three times the rate of fathers. More recently, there's been evidence of women coming back into the workforce, but no one has documented it real clearly as to whether all those lost gains have been recovered by mothers. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal reported just a few days ago on a study done by the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis, which said that as of November, fathers with kids under five who had reduced their labor force participation had made up almost all of that lost ground, while mothers with children under five had made up virtually none of that. Stunning. And, and I read that report as well. What, what do you think the causes are for that differential in returning to work? Well, I think it's twofold. Number one is many, many women in America are employed in industries that have been the hardest hit by COVID-19 and therefore actually have lost their jobs or been on indefinite furlough. But I also think there's a significant segment of the female workforce who have young children and have been thrust into the role of wearing more than the multiple hats they were already wearing because they've had to supervise their children's education from home, hopefully with some help if they've got a significant other. But again, most of the data I've seen suggests that while men, thank goodness, have stepped up to the plate in terms of being more involved in domestic chores, cooking, cleaning, taking out the garbage, doing the laundry, they really haven't played their fair share when it comes to dealing with the demands of trying to educate kids remotely. And so the classic image of this you know, traditional American family of mom and dad and two kids and mom and dad are both working uh, during COVID is dad's in the one room in the house that not only has all the gear you need to work, but it's got a door. And mom's at the kitchen table trying desperately to look at her laptop while glancing every five minutes or so at uh, Sally and, uh, and Stuart who are on their laptops for school. While trying to learn new math and teach it too, which is a challenge to to all of us. I've seen that exact 
scenario that you're talking about play out in many people I know where mom is wearing, as you said, just one more hat that is really stressing her to a degree that makes it very, very difficult. And that's why these women are dropping out of the workforce or dialing back their hours. Yeah, It's just too much. It's Mm -hmm. too much for anyone. I I can see it. Well, in your book, you're contrasting two generations of executive mothers, and you also interview the daughters of some. So you're really pulling in- Two and a half generations. Two and a half, you call. Okay, that would be good. So, But primarily, you're first talking about boomers and Gen Xers, and how do they differ in terms of their approach to- work and life? Well, that was what I set out to try and find out, you know, have things actually gotten better from those boomer moms who were overwhelmingly were the women I interviewed for earning it. In earning it, I talked to 52 highly successful executive female leaders and all but one of them were baby boomers. And so in interviewing 86 executive moms for power moms, I wondered How did the travails and the barriers and the trailblazing that the boomer moms experience make it any easier for those Gen Xers and millennials? Because that younger wave of executive mothers, two-thirds of them were Gen Xers and one-third were millennials. And to my delight, and not terribly surprised, you know, they were definitely having an easier time navigating the challenges of work and life. And the reasons were threefold. Number one was that we've had huge advances in technology. We never could have had this national experiment in working from home that so many white collar employees have been able to enjoy over the past 12 months if it wasn't for the kind of advances in technology that make that possible. The second thing is that many, many more of these younger executive mothers have highly supportive spouses, whether it's a husband or a wife or just a a life partner. And it's because, again, they saw how difficult it was for the generation before them, and they want a different kind of work and family life for themselves. Uh, And so they try to get together with someone who is committed to sharing not just the actual workload, but the mental load, which some people call the third shift, and to be co-parents and to push back when regression happens. And the third change, frankly, is the most profound and what really, it seems to me, bodes well for larger cultural shifts down the pike. And that is that the workplace ethos has changed. It was very, very unacceptable for working moms to, for instance, in the boomer era, to even display photos of their kids in the office because it somehow would make them seem less committed to their careers. The Gen Xers and the millennials proudly have those pictures of their kids when they open up their work laptop. It's, you know, it's their home screen. And so at the same time, Many of those boomer moms have now made it to the senior ranks, in many cases, CEO level, so that there are role models and mentors and sponsors for those younger women to turn to for guidance, for support, and for answers to the, well, at what age should I think about starting my family? And how long should I take off? And what should I do when I come back if that great commitment to co-parenting turns out to not be really real. It's crazy to think about the 
changes in terms of just even displaying your pictures as, as you say that. Mm-hmm. And we talk about your books and you've interviewed all these people, you know, 50 plus, 80 plus for, for each of these books. And yet you yourself, referring to your title of your earlier book, you yourself earned it. So I'm, I'm interested, you weave these stories throughout the book, which I love because it gives us a glimpse into what you were dealing with. And I'm interested for, you know, how about you? You know, you're in the the boomer generation, you trailblazed. What was it like to be pregnant and on the job back then raising your kids? Take us into that just for a moment. So at the point when I got pregnant for the first time, I had been at the Wall Street Journal for several years. I was a reporter. Um, I had ambitions to maybe someday be something more than a reporter, but I could not envision that being possible and having a child. And in fact, even long before we even decided to try and have a child, my bureau chief in Chicago had asked me whether I would like to become a bureau chief as my next uh, position. And at that time, the Wall Street Journal didn't even have any women as bureau chiefs. This was the late 70s. And I immediately told him, not now, maybe later, mostly because I did want to have a child and there were no role models within the Wall Street Journal that told me that this was possible because there wasn't even a woman who was a a bureau chief, much less a woman who had kids. When I announced my pregnancy for our first child, our son Dan, the then managing editor was ready to tear his hair out because he heard about a do- half a dozen pregnancies within a two-week period. You know, it seemed to be something kind of contagious going on in the news department and bureaus all over, <laughs> all over the United States. And he's like, this is not in my job description. I don't know what to do about this. I don't think he knew of any prior instances where a single reporter had announced her pregnancy, much less six at the you know, within a couple of weeks. And the other thing that made it very difficult from my perspective was that only two of the six of us said that we were coming back after our maternity leave. And the other woman who did, a reporter in New York, after a couple of months, she decided this wasn't for her and, and she decided to stay home with her child. So there I am essentially all by myself. And the journal's maternity leave, while it was generous, it was very strangely arranged. It was a 10-week benefit, but they required you to take four weeks before the birth of the child. And I was like, that's ridiculous. You know, if my doctor says I'm well enough to work, why do I have to sit and stare at an empty crib? Why can't I just tack (laughs) it on, you know, along with some vacation? And my bureau chief, you know, God bless him, uh, agreed to do that. and, And I took three months off. And when I came back, again, I had, you know, I'm groping in the dark here. I had nothing to guide me. There weren't a lot of books and the internet hadn't been invented yet. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll come back to work. I think it was either a Tuesday or Wednesday, and then it won't be so hard because I'm, you know, I'm starting back work in the middle of the week. It was very, very hard. And the guys in the office, and it was mostly guys, there were some women, but not, not a lot, were not hugely supportive. On my first day back at work, I was waiting for the bus ride home, and the guy standing next to me, who's a fellow journal reporter, said, so where do you park your baby all day? 
Fast forward, I then had wow. a second child, uh, Abra, in early 1983. And at the point when I was ready to go out on maternity leave, I proposed a reduced schedule. Again, not something I was aware of. I had heard that there was one or two copy editors who were women that worked part-time, but I didn't know them. And so, and I didn't know if they had kids. So, you know, it wasn't something like there was, again, anybody to look to for advice or role models or even precedent. And so I said, I'm willing to take a 20% cut in pay and benefits, you know, when I come back to work after my second maternity leave, I will have two kids under four years old. And the same bureau chief who had been willing to let me tack on, you know, that time to have greater maternity leave was kind of neutral about this idea. He had a stay-at-home wife and he said, I'll pass your, you know, proposal along to the powers that be and we'll see what they say. So clearly he wasn't going to take a position one way or another and, and it was turned down. Fast forward later that year, the bureau chief changed. Al Hunt became my bureau chief. He's married to Judy Woodruff. They already had a child. Uh, the managing editor changed. He was he had a working wife. And the managing editor asked me to react to a front page story that had appeared that described working moms having gone back to work and then two or three years later throwing in the towel because it was too hard and asked me what my reaction was. And I said, boy, in an email, I can really, you know relate to that and told him that I had proposed this four-day schedule with a 20% cut in pay and it had been turned down. And he says, oh, I think we should do that. And so fast forward, I not only got this four-day schedule, but they insisted that they expected I would be able to, without working longer days, generate as much good stories uh, working a four-day oh, regular oh no. work week as everybody else did on five. Not quite what is the right thing to do or what you had in mind, probably. But you also then, when you moved to four days, if I recall mm -hmm. from the book, you also felt like you had to hide it. Well, that's really funny because when I was reporting Power Moms, I did reach out to Al Hunt to, you know, because I was going to quote him in the book and, and do as journalists do, fact check. And I said to him, you know, my recollection of this deal was that you asked me to conceal it uh, so that we wouldn't get you know, other people jealous of my special deal. And in particular, I, I assumed that meant that the guys would be jealous. And again, this was projection, obviously, on my part. And his recollection of what went down was totally different. And he's like, no, he said, I seem to recall you telling me that you didn't want anybody to know about this uh, because you didn't want to look like you were tooting your own horn. And frankly, I think his recollection is probably right, uh, because fast forward, you know, after I had been doing this for several years, there was a, a local journalism review, the Washington Journalism Review, which was doing a cover story about stars of Washington journalism. Uh, and they had heard about other people at the journal who had special deals. And the reporter called me up and said, hey, I hear you have this great deal, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, because I had not told anybody in the office about it, I can neither confirm nor deny your question, you know, what a lot of sources have told me over the years. And I said, if you want further comment, I suggest you call my bureau chief, Al Hunt. And the reporter said, well, I did. He's the one who told me. Uh, so there I was in this story. And suddenly everybody in the bureau knew, you know, the secret was out. And many women who were colleagues of mine in the journal in Washington said, yeah, I wondered where you had been on Fridays all these last couple of years. But I, I thought maybe you weren't, you know, you, you had 
a deal that you were, you know, not working. But I had one or two guys come up to me and say, so if I get pregnant, can I have Fridays off too? And that is what I had been afraid of. Yes. And Thursdays too. Well, well, then, it, but, but a, then, it, but you see, have- this broke the mold, okay? And Alhan has reminded me since then that subsequently there were two women in the Washington Bureau who came to him and said, we want a job share. And again, that was unheard of at the Wall Street Journal, but I had proven that it works, the reduced schedule. And those two women job shared for several years. And then fast forward, now the Dow Jones, which is the division of News Corp that owns the Wall Street Journal, not only has very generous parental leave, but it's equally applied to, you know, irrespective of gender. And, you know, I saw men, you know, many male colleagues take off their full parental leave and they were doing it sequentially to their wives and they were all married to women going back to work. So, you know, the wife was staying home for three or four months, then going back to work and then then he stayed home. Again, if you look at how things have changed after the birth of each one of our kids, my husband, who only had, you know, a couple weeks of vacation and wanted to hoard it, had no paternity leave. He asked me if I could persuade the hospital to let me stay until Saturday. And then he only would have had to have taken off the day of the delivery as a vacation day. How times have changed and a special deal where you can get paid for four days, but turn out the work of five is, I don't know how special, but it is trailblazing and it is interesting to get into your world. There's another part of this to get into your world where technology has shifted. And I want to just read a little bit from your book, I think page 87, to take you into your world and take you into the next question, which is about technology. It starts out, it's late at night. And I'm home after another arduous day at the Wall Street Journal in London. But I can't go to bed yet, as second in command of this important journal bureau. I'm the final point of deadline contact for our New York editors every work night. Suddenly, the phone rings loudly in our apartment's living room. I grab the receiver before the harsh jangle wakes my two sleeping children. Hey, is it like midnight there? A journal copy desk guy in New York inquires. Yep, same time it was when you called last night, I reply wearily. The nocturnal London scene happened repeatedly until the journal transferred me to New York in 1990. And so you're talking about this gadget, this always on, this you must always be on, and and you're talking about this always on switch. And it's difficult now, the shift again with technology where we're always on, and this spans women, men, it spans the workforce. Absolutely. And what advice do you have for people in terms of boundaries and Why is it that some people have more difficulty in doing it? You did it. You did it clearly Friday uh, through Saturday. Why is it that some people just, I'm not going to say that it's me, but why is it that some people have really difficult time ever turning it all off? There's a twofold reason. I think number one is we think that we are completely indispensable, that somehow the world of work that we are part of will fall apart if we're not always on. And I also think, you know, the other side of this is we can be always on, you know, when it was not possible, frankly, to be always on, you could essentially disconnect from work. But, you know, frankly, this was one of the more disconcerting differences between the two generations of executive mothers that I interviewed. The younger women not only were always on, but they somehow felt compelled to be always on because somehow then they weren't going to be meeting either their own expectations or those of the workplace. 
And frankly, while I think it's important for us as individuals to set boundaries, whether that means having, for instance, say a second phone line on your smartphone and only making that second phone line being your personal phone line, one that you can be reached on in emergencies during off hours by perhaps only one person at the office to, you know, actually not taking the smartphone into your bedroom at night. You know, it is possible to set boundaries if we recognize that that is important for our mental sanity. It also means not sending emails to the people in your team at two o'clock in the morning just because you're having insomnia. It means, you know, setting the timer on your email distribution to be delayed distribution or leaving them in draft mode. Because frankly, people who work for you, if they see something pop up because they are sleeping with their smartphone at 2 a.m., they're going to get out of bed and feel like they have to answer it. But I think in order to move away from the always-on mentality, a mentality which almost always is unhealthy, the direction and the tone has to be set at the top. And as you will remember, I mentioned a couple companies in the book where they do things like actually forcing your email to be not usable when you're on vacation or agreeing. Yes, I love that. Or agreeing that there are going to be protected hours. And in some cases, the companies let their work from home staffers choose what those protected hours are because they need to be available for those kids that they are trying to supervise their schooling from home between, you know, you you pick it, 8 and 11 or 1 to 4. And in order to move away from always on, companies also need to measure people by their results, not what time of day they're performing the work. I love that. And I've been hearing some of your ideas, as I told people in your columns for decades, and I'm a big believer in it. Keep things in drafts. The leader shouldn't signal to the team that you should respond. You shouldn't be sending out those notes, all those things. It's difficult in a global organization when you're now responding to somebody in Asia or whatever, and then you can really get into it. But it is very important to set these boundaries, particularly for women in this difficult period and situation that they're dealing with. You also talk about going back to some of the issues that women have faced, and I've seen this firsthand in my family with many friends, is this issue of guilt. What are some of the ways that people who are successful kind of deal with this working mother guilt that surprisingly just still pervades? Again, I was surprised that it still existed among the younger generation of uh, executives that I interviewed. But I don't think it is as pervasive as certainly it was among the boomer moms. And what was interesting is that in addition to those 86 executive mothers, those 25 adult daughters that you were alluding to at the beginning of the conversation, who for the most part were in their 20s, often did not have the same memories as mom did, of things that had happened when they were growing up that mom is still torturing herself over and filling herself with guilt about just didn't register, you know, on the seven, eight, nine, or 10-year-old's psyche the way it had registered on, on moms. And so that's why it's really important to get rid of that bogeyman known as working mother guilt. It's also something, frankly, that persists because we still live in a society that has gendered role expectations in which the woman is still seen as the primary parent when kids arrive. There have been many men like you who have done podcasts with me for this book, and I've asked them 
If they do have children, have they ever suffered working father guilt? And to a man, they've all said, yeah, there's been the, the kids, you know, softball game where I got there too late to see Johnny hit the home run. And I felt bad about it at the moment, but I didn't like, you know, beat myself up over working mother or working father guilt. But if my wife showed up for the same reason late because of something at work, she went through this huge guilt trip. And so I think for starters, we need to make sure that we understand that once again, we are not perfect. That is one of the hacks that I list in that chapter on how to ditch working mother guilt. We are going to be imperfect parents. We're going to be imperfect employees, imperfect leaders, and it's okay. You know, it doesn't make us anything, you know, less successful because we're trying our darndest. A second hack is to carve out special time for you. And there was this great example of this younger executive mom who, again, these interviews all took place before the pandemic, who she and her husband had agreed would have two hours every Sunday just for herself. I don't know what part of the weekend on Saturday was his two-hour spot, but I'm sure he had that too. But during her two-hour special moments, he was spending it with their toddler son, and she could do whatever she wanted, whether it was meeting her girlfriends for brunch or getting a manicure or a massage or just taking a two-hour bath. And she said this so mentally and emotionally and psychologically and physically refreshed her that she went back to work on Monday morning feeling, you know, greatly recharged. Self-care is very important because self-care is not selfish care. It is actually selfless care, because if we don't take care of ourselves, men and women alike, we can't be good partners, we can't be good employees, and we certainly can't be good parents. But I think the other issue here is to look at life as the glass half full. And it was described to me this way, rather than beating yourself up over the fact that because you were on deadline, you're not sitting down for dinner with your children until seven o'clock, celebrate the fact that guess what? We're eating together as a family. Who cares what time it is? Yes, that's so good. You know, I remember working in a global organization. I'm in Europe. We're at a customer dinner. And my daughter called because she needed some help with homework. And I always took those calls. And I'd stepped, I said, excuse me to the customers. I'm helping my daughter with homework. And off I went. And I remember coming back and one of the other executives who was a woman said, I can't believe you did that. And can I do that? And I said, of course you can do that. <laughs> and it was fine. And the customers were delighted. They understood. We talked about family, et cetera. So it is always possible, but I, I never felt guilty about stepping away. I just did it. And she did. And I think about that when I was reading your, your section on guilt, but there's also guilt the other way. Some have told me that they feel shame by not choosing to work when the kids are young, or they feel it's difficult because they want to keep their skills as sharp as possible, but they want to take off, say, a year and then go back. So what advice do you have for, for women in those situations who are obviously not in an executive CEO role? They're just trying to step back and then they want to step back in. What advice do you have for them in navigating that? Well, I think that that is a choice that many women are making, as, as we talked about earlier in this broadcast, as a consequence of COVID. And there's been a fair amount of hand-wringing over how this is setting back the advancement and progress of women in the workplace. And it certainly has the potential to have that damage. 
But I think on an individual basis that women should not worry that this is somehow going to make them, you know, any less successful than they would have otherwise been in their careers. But they need to be mindful of keeping up their networks, both personal and professional, while they're on that time of being totally focused on their family. To the extent that they can get involved in a nonprofit group, particularly perhaps at the board level, that's also going to keep their skills sharp. And it's also going to open them up to fresh connections and contacts who might become then door openers when they decide to rejoin the workplace. And a third thing that they might consider doing is finding out before they leave the workplace, whether their current employer has a returnship program, which a number of companies had put in place, again, pre-COVID, under which they hired or brought back former employees who had taken significant time off of work, not always for parenting reasons, sometimes to care for an elderly relative. But the idea is that you are put in essentially a paid internship typically for a year, where you are reintegrated into the workplace, you're able to update your technical skills and show your stuff. And at the end of that returnship, then both sides can make a decision about whether to make the arrangement permanent. I love it. I have one more question on women, and then I want to close out with a question on writing. And and this, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that more women are graduating with college degrees, with graduate degrees, We're seeing significant increases in women in senior management. I think it's 20 plus percent of senior level jobs reporting to the CEO is filled by a woman. CEO ranks slowly changing, but that, of course, has to come up from that pipeline. More women are on boards, uh, seeing much more of that. It's moving, probably not moving nearly as fast as we would have thought, but it is moving. What are your hopes for women in the coming years? And Do you have any hopes for men too, or as those rates are declining? Well, my hopes for working women are the same as my hopes are for working men. And that is that we will all strive to be our best, but know our limits. And that as parents, men and women alike, we will commit ourselves to getting a lot of these unconscious biases to change and alter our expectations for what makes a good mother and alter our expectations for what makes a good father. And be frankly flexible about choosing, for instance, who becomes the stay-at-home parent. If we think it's important that there be a parent with our children when they're young, let's not only swap off who takes parental leave, let's take turns being the stay-at-home parent. You know, why should it always be mom or why should it always be dad? And in so doing, we're going to be raising a generation of not just feminist daughters, but of feminist sons. And it's certainly something that my husband and I tried very hard to do. And we actually memorialized that in our marriage contract, which we wrote when we got married in the early 70s. And it had this famous sentence that I give total credit to Mike for, which said that household duties shall be shared equally, but not necessarily cheerfully. (laughs) I loved that line when I saw that. Unusual thing to do a contract. I love the line you said, strive to be our best, but know our limits. I want to switch to one other quick area because a lot of people listening to this podcast are in the publishing industry or librarian industry or 
writing, journalists, et cetera, many, many book authors. You have written countless, I don't know if you possibly could know the number of articles that you have written over your storied career and now have written two books. And I'd love for you to just tell us about your writing process. Is it the same? Is it different in terms of writing an article versus writing a book? Well, the writing process is the same for both in that it is long, it is laborious, it is careful, it is crafted, and it requires a lot of rewrites. And even when you think you're done, you still have to do more rewriting. But when I set about to do a book for the first time, I did not recognize the fact that being a journalist was very different than being a book author. And my eyes were open when I decided to hire someone to be my editor for the first book. And she was a veteran New York Times columnist who had written three books and edited three books. And when I met her for the first time, she said, you're going to have to learn to be authorly. And I was like, to be what? I had no idea what she was talking about. (laughs) And she said, you have to slow down and essentially bring the readers into the room with you. Take your time to set the scene, to make them be able to picture where you are and who this person is that you are talking to. And you're going to have to write longer paragraphs because obviously newspaper journalism is one sentence paragraphs for the most part. And so she ended up doing a very good job of editing, but a lot of it consisted of connecting my paragraphs that were too short. Well, I guess we're going to live in an even more difficult world as the next generation starts to write since they're living in a Twitter universe and limited to only a few characters. It's probably going to be even harder. We'll have these very short paragraphs. You can see why Joanne Lublin is so interesting and the advice that she gives is so important. We've been focused on issues specifically with power moms and women at work because I'm a big advocate of women and making sure that women have the opportunities and can grow their careers and support it. But also she has this wealth of great advice. So she's been in my head for years, as I said, because I read the Wall Street Journal every single day for decades. And she has all of these columns and management advice and advice for families. And so it is nice that I can actually have an actual voice to match the voice that was in my head for all those years of you talking. So Thank you for these two great books and for sharing your advice and wisdom, not just for the women in the audience, but also for the men to be aware of these issues. We, we appreciate it. Thank you for making the time. And if anyone would like a personalized autograph book plate, all you have to do is buy a hardback version of Power Moms and let me know that you've done so and email me your mailing address. My email address is Joanne Lublin. J-O-A-N-N-L-U-B-L-I-N at gmail.com. Well, thank you for that wise advice and for that generous offer. And I encourage people to do that. And we look forward to book number three, which I hope you're starting on. (laughs) Well, I have to come up with an idea first. (laughs) I I never never thought I had it in me to write book one, much less book two. So who knows? I think many are inside. So thank you very much. And thanks for helping all of our listeners aim higher. You're welcome.
Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. And if you like what you hear, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre. Always aim higher.